Well, good morning and happy Easter. Good to have you here today. I thought I'd start by uh, telling you a story of a conversation I had with a friend um, a few years back. He called me all excited to relay some events that had just uh, transpired for him. He, uh, he was a church, he's a pastor uh, in Southern California, but he grew up in Minnesota, and uh, he grew up in the 70s uh, riding his bike to watch Minnesota Kicks professional soccer games. Uh, that league has long since uh, bankrupt, but uh, it, was, it was happening when he was a kid, and he used to particularly be interested in following uh, his hero and star, number nine, Alan Wiley. Well, a few years back, he said, for reasons I can't really explain, I decided I really, really want to have an Alan Wiley Minnesota Kicks jersey. So he said, I set out to find one. And he said, I did all the things that you would expect uh, to try and locate one, including, you know, eBay and everything else. He says, nobody has one. So he said, but I had to have one, so I, I took some pictures of it, and I went to a friend who works in the apparel industry, and I said, would you make me one of these jerseys? And she said, well, no, I can't do that because of trademark issues. He said, so I then spent a few more months, found the, found the uh, former owner of the Kicks, secured uh, the rights, written permission to make one uh, Minnesota Kicks jersey. And he says, I, I spent more money on this whole thing than I ever would be willing to admit to my wife. But eventually, I had a jersey, a number nine Alan Wiley Minnesota Kicks jersey. He said, and as soon as I looked at it and actually held it, I realized I had no intention of ever wearing it. It was right out of the leisure suit era. It was uh, orange, bright orange with baby blue trim. And he says, it was atrocious. He said, but I, I had it. Well, then uh, fast forward a couple months later, he was traveling to... Um, to St. Paul. He's written some books. He travels around speaking, and he had been booked in St. Paul. And he said, again, for reasons I can't completely explain, I decided to pack the jersey. And then that morning, um, he said, I'm in the hotel ballroom where I'm going to speak, and, and, um, and I decide I've got to put it on. He says, so I slip out, I go back to my room, and I put on this jersey. He says, take off my business attire, put on this jersey. Well, uh, he then gets up to speak without saying anything at all about why he's wearing this 1970s Minnesota Kicks uh, uniform. In the audience that day, uh, and this is a person, it was a, it was a Christian gathering, but uh, the person walked in late. He had sat in his car for some period of time. He had made a decision to follow Christ one year to the date earlier. But things were not going as he expected, and he's starting to have some doubts, and so he sat in his car praying, God, if you're there, I need a sign. He then walks into this meeting. His name is Alan Wiley. And there on the stage is this speaker wearing his uniform. Well, after the, after the talk, he goes running up to talk to my friend David. And he says, where did you get that jersey? Nobody has those jerseys. Those jerseys don't exist. How do you have my number nine Minnesota Kicks jersey? And David said, when I realized right, that this was Alan Wiley. He says, I, I couldn't even talk. So he said, I, I gave him my contact information, and we agreed we were going to talk a little bit later on. Well, then, before he leaves to head back to, uh, to San Diego, he's speaking again that Sunday evening at a church. He tells this story about being compelled to have this jersey made and all the trouble he went through to get it and the fact that Alan Wiley was there. In this congregation... 
never been there before, wasn't his church, didn't know that David was going to be speaking, is Alan Wiley again. When he hears all the things that went into to this happening, he stands up and he goes, here I am, I'm Alan Wiley. And he goes, David says, the place just erupted and everybody is overwhelmed. So, so David called me then that Monday to report all this and he said, uh, he said, when I think about the fact that God was already moving in me a couple years before Alan Wiley becomes a Christ follower to be able to answer this prayer that he prays. He goes, I'm just staggered by what happened. Now, some of you are thinking, well, you know, I believe if things like that happened in my life, but they don't. I don't, I don't have any of those kinds of signs. God doesn't seem to answer my prayer in that way. Well, I want to argue today that you have been given a sign, and it's actually more amazing than someone showing up wearing your soccer uniform, and that is an empty tomb. Uh, it is a sign that confirms that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and he did what he was set out to do. Now, I'm going to assume that you have a working knowledge of the story here. Um, you grew up in a church, if you've been attending one lately, certainly if you've been here going through this Luke series that we've been working through. The, the, the Bible's divided into two big sections. The, the, uh, the last, about fifth, is called the New Testament. And the first four books in the New Testament are accounts, not biographies really, but they're accounts of the life of Jesus Christ. And Luke's gospel, one of the four, is called Luke's gospel because it was written by Luke, a uh, travel companion to the Apostle Paul. And it's very similar to Matthew, Mark, and John. <clears throat> they're, they're united in telling uh, essentially the same story, that Jesus was and is God, that he existed as God in heaven before he showed up on earth which all takes place at what we call the Incarnation. That's the Christmas story. That he somehow steps down out of heaven. While remaining fully God, he becomes fully man. And he does this in order to live among us. He does this in order to to teach and to love and to serve and to be an example and to fulfill the law. Ultimately to defeat evil and to die in your place and mine to take upon himself the sins of the world. Um, and he does this at the time of the Jewish Passover. So we celebrated this last week. Jesus timed his arrival in Jerusalem when he knew he would be crucified. He timed this to correspond to the Jewish Passover. And uh, he shows up initially. We call it the triumphal entry. Everything's going well. Uh, he's the hero. Lots of applause. Uh, but he not only manages to get further sideways with the Jewish and religious, or the Jewish and the Roman authorities, he also gets sideways with the people at large, uh, because he refuse, refuses to fulfill their hopes and expectations by leading them in a revolt. And so uh, he is eventually charged uh, with blasphemy. That's the charge the Jewish leaders put forward. But uh, they don't have the ability to put Christ to death because they are, they are under the authority of the Romans. They're sort of living in occupied land. The Romans don't give them that privilege. The Romans are not interested in putting Jesus to death for claiming to be God. They could care less about that. Uh, they're a little bit bothered by the fact that he claims to be king, which is a title reserved for 
Caesar. So this is sort of a treasonous act. And when the crowds get a little bit unruly, they uh, go ahead and they have Christ crucified on the cross. Um, and it's a, it's a horrible, horrible death. But um, something remarkable happens after that. And that's what we, you saw in this uh, video from the Son of, of God uh, movie series. And that is that when these women appear at the tomb that, that morning, they discover that it's not exactly empty because his grave clothes are there, but he's no longer there. And he's no longer there because he's come back from the dead. And he's come back from the dead because he is, in fact, not just a great teacher, not just a good example, not just a moral reformer, but he is, in fact, God himself. And, and his death sets in motion uh, something that cascades down until it gets to here, to you today. You have showed up uh, at a church on Easter morning. We don't gather because Christ gave us the greatest ethical teaching of all time, although I would argue that he did. We don't gather because he was such a great guy, such a great example. Uh, We don't gather for any of those reasons. It's possible that had Jesus not conquered death, that we would still recognize him among the greatest teachers, the greatest people, uh, the founders of a religion. It's possible those things would have happened. But let's be clear, we don't gather for any of those reasons. We gather today because the tomb was empty. And and the belief that that, that is quickly spread among his followers that Christ has conquered death. He's come back as he said he would. As all the prophecies of the Old Testament uh, suggest, he has come back from the dead. He has paid our moral debt and now everything changes. And so <clears throat> that's what sets in motion the birth of the church. And the book of Acts tells us uh, what happens in the next 30 years as it begins to just expand. It, it grows like a bad weed. In spite of the fact that it's illegal to be a Christ follower for the first 300 years, uh, Christianity is going to spread all over the place. If you stayed awake during any of your Western Civ class in high school, you might know that it not only spread throughout Jerusalem and Judea, it, it then spread throughout the Roman Empire, and it would, will then jump the borders and it will spread around the world until uh, at this point today, it's uh, safe to say that the Church of Jesus Christ is the oldest, it's the largest, it's the most geographically and ethnically diverse organization in the history of the world. And it continues to grow more quickly than any other movement, than any other uh, worldview or faith. Uh, Not growing in this country or Western Europe so much, but it continues to grow rapidly in Africa, Asia, Latin America. There will be more Christians gathered in China today than will gather in the United States. And um, so it is, it is spread. And I share all that to say we gather today because of uh, an empty tomb 2,000 years ago. And we believe that that empty tomb serves as a confirmation that Christ is who he claimed to be. Uh, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the King of kings, and Lord of lords. The one who came to, to pay your moral debt and mine, and to secure for us eternal life. 
Now, look, I understand that not all of you believe what I've just said. So uh, let me back up and get a running start and try and persuade you. I have three points that I want to make today. Three things that I, I, I just think you need to wrestle with. First of all, Christianity in general, and the resurrection in particular, makes an historical claim. Easter has become a cultural event, right? Buy a new dress, uh, show up at church before going to brunch, uh, eat jelly beans and uh, chocolate bunny ears, right? There are things that you do around Easter, and, uh, and so it has this place in our society. But let's be clear, that's not what it was designed to be. What it was designed to be is a commemoration of an empty tomb. And Christianity makes this as a historical claim. Right? The Bible never says, a long time ago in a faraway land. It always grounds things very specifically in a time and in a place. And in fact, we could set this book aside and, and, and not trust it at all. And on the basis of extra-biblical first-century documents we could establish almost everything that I have subsequently put out. So just think about this, because you go back 2,000 years ago, uh, there was no 24-hour news channels. The New York Times didn't have a correspondent in Bethlehem. Nobody was writing anything down. And yet, based on non-Christian sources, we can establish these critical eight points. Number one, A person named Jesus lived in the first century region of Judea. Number two, he was a provocative teacher and a wise and virtuous man. Number three, he reportedly performed miracles and made prophetic claims. Number four, the Jewish leaders condemned him for acts of sorcery and apostasy, right? Miracles and claiming to be God. Number five, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate during the time of the Passover under the reign of Emperor Tiberius. Number six, Christ's followers, called Christians, reported that he had risen from the dead, right? Because the tomb was empty and they saw him alive. Number seven, this launched the Christian faith, which quickly spread to Rome and beyond, even though Christians were persecuted and martyred for their faith. And number eight, first century Christians worshipped Jesus as God and celebrated the Lord's Supper in their services, while at times the Romans ridiculed the followers of Christ as morally weak, these disciples were often known for their courage and virtue. So just, again, consider the fact that nobody was really writing much, right? I mean, there wasn't paper. You couldn't go to Office Depot and buy paper. This is papyrus. You've got to treat it. It's a big deal. There's not, you can't get pens. Very few people are writing anything down. And the people who are writing things down, almost all of it is lost. But what they were mostly focused on generals and kings. Almost nobody was writing about first century rabbis in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. And yet, from Greek, Jewish, and Roman sources, we can establish the claims that we find in the New Testament. So, let me put it this way. If you're here today against your will, and I know that some of you are, right? Easter's a bust. I mean, you know, at least at Christmas there's presents, you get time off from school and all of that. Here, you gotta, you gotta hang with the family, you gotta go to church. 
No presents. A little bit of jelly beans, big deal, who cares? So Easter's, Easter's really sort of uh, a lame holiday. So if you want next Easter off, right? if you want to be able to sleep in, if you want all this to go away, then all you have to do is disprove the historical claim. And the way to do that is to disprove the resurrection. If you can do that, the whole thing implodes. And as a matter of fact, that's what the Apostle Paul said. If you disprove the resurrection, then it's a joke. The whole thing, it's a house of cards. Lee Strobel, uh, who was a... uh, the, the editor, the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, set out to do that. He was an atheist, law degree from Yale, um, and working for the Trib, when his wife, an agnostic, became a Christian. So I want to read to you from an article that he wrote in the Wall Street Journal a couple years ago. Uh, it describes her decision to follow Christ and what he did after that. He writes, two words shot through my mind. The first was an expletive. The second was divorce. I thought she was going to turn into a self-righteous holy roller. But over the months, I was intrigued by the positive changes in her character and values. Finally, I decided to take my journalism and legal training and systematically investigate whether there was any credibility to Christianity. Maybe, I figured, I could extricate her from this cult. I quickly determined that the alleged resurrection of Jesus Christ was the key. Anyone can claim to be divine. But if Jesus backed up his claim by returning from the dead, then that was awfully good evidence that he was telling the truth. For nearly two years, I explored the minutia of the historical data on whether Easter was a myth or a reality. I didn't merely accept the New Testament documents at face value. I was determined only to consider facts that were well-supported historically. As my investigation unfolded, my atheism began to buckle. Was Jesus really executed? In my opinion, the evidence was so strong that even atheist, historian Gerard Ludeman, was correct when he said that Christ's death by crucifixion was indisputable. Was Jesus' tomb really empty? Scholar William Lane Craig points out that its location was known to Christians and non-Christians alike. So if it hadn't been empty... It would have been impossible for a movement founded on the resurrection to have exploded into existence in the same city where Jesus had publicly been executed just a few weeks before. Besides, even Christ's opponents implicitly admitted the tomb was vacant by saying that his body had been stolen. But nobody had a motive for taking the body, especially the disciples. They wouldn't have been willing to die brutal martyrs' deaths if they knew that it was all based on a lie. Did anyone see Jesus alive again? I've identified at least eight ancient sources, both inside and outside the New Testament, that in my view confirm the apostles' conviction that they encountered the resurrected Christ. Repeatedly, these sources stood strong when I tried to discredit them. Could these encounters have been hallucinations? No way, experts told me. Hallucinations occur in individual brains, like dreams. Yet according to the Bible... Jesus appeared to groups of people on three different occasions. One time he appeared to more than 500. Was, this some, was there some other uh, sort of vision, perhaps prompted by the apostles' grief over the, their leader's execution? 
This wouldn't explain the dramatic conversion of Saul, an enemy of Christians, or of James, the once skeptical half-brother of Jesus. Neither was primed for a vision, yet each saw the risen Jesus and later died proclaiming that he had appeared to them. Besides, if these were visions, the body would still have been in the tomb. Was the the resurrection simply the recasting of ancient mythology, akin to the fanciful tales of Mithras? If you want to see a historian laugh out loud, bring up that kind of pop culture nonsense. One by one, my objections evaporated. I read books by skeptics, but their counterarguments crumbled under the weight of the historical data. No wonder atheists so often come up short in scholarly debates about the resurrection. In the end, after I had thoroughly investigated the matter, I reached an unexpected conclusion. It would actually take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a follower of Jesus. And that is why I'm now celebrating Easter as a Christian. Not because of wishful thinking, the fear of death, or the need for a psychological crutch, but because of the facts. The resurrection is a historical claim. Point number one, I said I had three points today. Number one, you have to understand that Christianity in general and the resurrection in particular are historical claims. Number two, you need to understand that it's more than that. The resurrection is bigger than you think. Right? It's an exclamation point. For starters, it, it's, it's, a, it's an exclamation point on the most remarkable life that ever lived. This isn't a claim right, that I have risen from the dead or that you are going to rise from the dead. This is a claim that, the, that arguably the greatest person to ever live, the most influential person to ever live, the one who inspired more good deeds, more hospitals, orphanages, you know, more child labor laws, more good, the one who gave us the greatest ethical system that we have, that he claimed to be God, said he would rise from the dead, and then rose from the dead. This is a different matter. And additionally, it's a bigger deal than you might think because the resurrection, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, one of the letters that he wrote that make up the New Testament, the resurrection is the first fruits of God's future work. So, earlier, uh, David pointed out that we gather on a Sunday as opposed to a Saturday because everything shifted with the resurrection. The resurrection was so big that it changed everything and as opposed to having... Uh, the Jewish Sabbath on a Saturday, Christians worship on a Sunday. Okay, but, but then that begs an earlier question. Well, why did Christ rise from the grave on a Sunday? Well, that's because, according to the Jewish tradition, according to the Jewish teaching about creation, Sunday was the first day of the work week. And Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of God's plan. So his resurrection is the first of the resurrections. But the promise, the hope, the claim is that there will be many more resurrections. People being given immortal bodies that are perfect. Are you Are you tired of Are you tired of living in a broken world or are you tired of dealing with a broken fallen body? The resurrection stands as a <clears throat> confirmation of what God is going to do for those who reach out to him. Point number three. The third thing I want you to understand is that there is hope. Um, 
there's hope for you no matter what your problems are because God is for you. There is a loving God who wants to be for you. See, the claim is not that there is a God who exists, like, uh, you know, some first cause or, the, or the, the unmoved mover that the Greek philosophers talked about. The claim is that there is a personal, loving God who exists and, and that he has reached out to you and he has done so in the most amazing way. In John, we read that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So, <clears throat> the hardest part of my job is um, persuading people that this good news is really true. Because today we're so um, cynical and jaded, and we're, we're offered so many bait-and-switch kinds of things that it's hard for people to believe that, that, that God would reach out to them, not because they're being good, because that's not the deal, right? God knows, right? God knows our heart. God knows how broken we are. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us in spite of the fact that we're unlovable. This is, this is about God being good, not about us. And, and God is so good, the offer is so good, that, that those who respond to his gift are given eternal life. Forgiven of their sin, promised a future resurrection and eternal life. The hardest part of my job is is persuading people that that good news could possibly be true. So let me tell another story, wrap up with this. It, it, um, perhaps it's an opportunity to smuggle a little bit of the truth under the radar. And uh, that's the way it, it I experienced it. I've, I've told this story uh, before in Alpha and, and uh, perhaps in some other settings, but it was such a pivotal moment in my life that I think it deserves to be retold. Um, several years ago, six years ago, a friend and I bought a sailboat. Uh, it was a 1985, 35-foot O'Day, if you're a sailor. Um, and, and one of the first big outings that we took, we took our two boys, our two youngest boys, each of us, and we sailed across Lake Michigan to South Haven, Michigan. And uh, it takes about 14 hours. If you're, in a, if you're in a jet, I've timed it, you look out the window, oh, okay, there's the shore of Michigan, it's about 15 minutes to get to the shore of Illinois. If you're in a sailboat, it's about 15 hours. And uh, so we, we sailed there, got up early one morning, sailed there, got in about 6.30, 7 o'clock, had dinner. The plan was, we slept on the boat, plan was get up really early the next morning and sail back. But when we got up the next morning, lot of uh, lot of wind right in our face, big waves, and it was pretty obvious we were not going to sail back. So we decided to kick back and enjoy South Haven. And in that afternoon, we went out to um, we went down to the beach in order to in order to body surf. Right? I mean, these are the biggest waves I'd ever seen in Lake Michigan, and we were having a great time, the four of us. And then all of a sudden, uh, I felt like it was getting too rough. Like, wow. This is really uh, more than I think we can handle. And so I, I sort of huddled with my friend, and I said, I think we give the boys a few more minutes, and then we've got to pull them out. 
So a few minutes later, we were trying to pull them out, trying, because they, of course, do not want to get out. And uh, at that moment, my friend noticed that there were, uh, there, was, there were people in trouble. They were about 100 yards down the beach, but it was obvious that there were people in trouble. And they were way out by this pier. So we went running down the beach and, and then running out onto the pier. And when we got down there, there was a, they had pulled all the kids out and a couple of the adults that had gone in for them. But there was uh, one guy face down in the water. And, uh, and then there were three people that we think had jumped in to help, help this guy. So my friend takes over, and we worked for the next 10 uh, to 15 minutes trying to get this guy. Because the waves were huge, and we were trying to time it that we could get this guy, and you know, we, could, we could get him onto the pier. After about 10 minutes, I said, you know what, this isn't working. And I, I said, I'm, I'm jumping in. And uh, my friend said, no, 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 don't do that. He goes, Mike, reality is this guy's been face down in the water for at least 10 minutes, maybe more like 15. He's, he's drowned. They go, those three guys in there are in trouble. They just don't know it yet. And he goes, it's going to take everything we've got to get them out. Do not jump in. We've got to get those three guys out. And he was right, and it took everything we had to get those three guys out. We finally did. And, uh, and about that time, the emergency personnel were there, and so we were, we were relieved. And the, the dock was sort of pandemonium because obviously there's a, there's a guy that's drowned and his family is there, and it's, it, it, was, it was bad. So we're released. We find the boys. We walk down the, the pier, and we sit on this park bench. And we spend the next hour or two talking about what we did and what we should have done and what if we'd tried this and what if we'd done that and... And I kept repeating, I, you know, I should have jumped in. And, uh, and my friend kept saying, that, that would have been, if you jumped in, uh, I don't know whether you would have made it or not, but I know that not all three of those guys would have made it. You, you jumping in would have been a bad idea. Well, we continued to have this conversation over the course of the next, uh, the next day, our 14 hours of sailing back. And, uh, and then throughout the course of the next couple of weeks, I sort of wrestled with this off and on. Um, and then about three months later, I had this just profound eureka moment. Um, when I wake up in the morning, I, I often pray a prayer that I learned from a, a British uh, pastor named John Stott. And the prayer, the prayer that he prays um, goes something like this. Good morning, Heavenly Father. Uh, I praise you. You're the creator of everything everywhere. Good morning, Lord Jesus. I praise you. You are the Savior of the world. Good morning, Spirit of God. I praise you. You're the sanctifier of God's people. Uh, as it was in the beginning, as now and ever shall be. Amen. Heavenly Father, I pray that today I can live in your presence and bring you joy. Lord Jesus, I pray that today I, I will follow you. I will deny myself and pick up my cross and walk after you. And Spirit of God, I pray that today your fruit would ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Holy, blessed, triune God, one God in three persons, have mercy on my soul. So I, I pray this prayer, not always you know, out loud, but as I'm walking from the bedroom uh, down to the coffee pot, you know, I'm often just sort of praying this prayer. I don't have it memorized. It's not word perfect, and so each time it's different. That particular day, as I was walking down the stairs, instead of saying, I praise you, Lord Jesus, you're the Savior of the world, I said, I praise you, Lord Jesus, you saved me. And when I said it that way, the next thought I had was, he would have jumped, right? He would have gone in. 
If I was in the water, he would have jumped in after me. And then I thought, no, 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 Mike, you've been over this a thousand times. Bad plan, jumping in. You probably would have died. Bad plan. And uh, I thought, well, he would have, knowing that he would have died, he would have jumped in. That's what he did. Right? And so I'm, I'm, I'm really shaken by this. And I sit down on the step, and I'm just sort of playing this over in my mind, when all of a sudden, this new thought hits me. It's, it says, this verse I was citing, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. It had never once occurred to me, in all the times we had done scenario playing, that I could have sent my son in to help this man. And this should have been obvious, because my son is a much better swimmer than I am. He's going to become the captain of the water polo team, right? I mean, he's a, he's a great swimmer. So if anybody was going to go in, it should have been him. But in 500 or 1,000 times of going through this and say, what could we have done? What could we have done? It never once occurred to me, oh, I could have had my son jump in. Because that's just unthinkable. What father would send their son in to harm's way? I mean, it just I, it never occurred to me. And yet... That's the claim, right? That God so loved you that he sent his son to die in your place and secure for you eternal life. So, my job is not to make you feel good this morning. It's not to give you a little religious backdrop to brunch later on. It's not to give you a place to show up wearing a new Easter dress or, a, you know, a new tie or whatever. It's not even to tell you to be kind and generous and help little old ladies across the street. My job is to tell you that, that a holy, loving God exists and he loves you. But your sin, right, my sin is a barrier to that relationship. So he made a way back for us. He entered time and space. The resurrection is a historical claim. In the fullness of time, Jesus, fully God, stepped out of heaven in order to show up as a baby, in order to live and love and serve and teach and defeat evil, fulfill the law, and ultimately to die on a cross in your place to pay the moral debt that you have accrued. You are invited to turn to him, to sign up, to follow. He's not forcing your hand, but that invitation is out there. And so I will end today as I end almost all my Easter services by saying, take the next step. (laughs) Run after God. If you doubt, right, do what Strobel did. Look into this. The the most significant influential person who ever lived, who fulfills all the prophecies that we find in the Old Testament, claimed that he was going to die in your place, and it sure looks like he did. You owe it to yourself to take the next step, whatever that looks like. Maybe that's getting back involved in a small group. Maybe that's deciding you're going to you're going to make worship on a weekly basis a priority. I I don't know what it is, but take the next step. You need a savior, a teacher, a guide, and a way back to God. You, You cannot clean up your life good enough that God is going to affirm you. It doesn't work that way. You have a savior, you reach out to him. Let me pray for us.
Heavenly Father, I um, want to thank you again for the great gift that you gave us of your Son, Christ Jesus, who set aside heaven and glory and all the honor and all the rights and privileges of being God to show up in the backwaters of the Roman Empire in, in poverty and to live uh, among us and to suffer all the uh, indignities that he did of uh, dying in our place, paying our moral debt. Heavenly Father, I can't imagine what it was like to send your son into harm's way. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you accepted that assignment. And I pray, Father, for those who are um, confused, skeptical, softening, reconsidering. I pray that, um, that you would be disruptive in their lives until they find that peace that comes from you. So we pray to that end. In Christ's name, amen.